Hey everyone, really quickly before we begin, Todd and I were in the middle of recording a segment on Albios when we were like, hmm, doesn't this conversation sound familiar? And then we looked back and saw that we had actually done Albios for episode two, so we didn't really have the time to prepare and record another episode, so we just left this episode a little bit short. We'll pick back up next time. Thanks for listening. everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast, ICU Ed Like Education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast Podcast. I am Eddie, he is Todd, and away we go. One programming, not really a note, but more of a FYI. We're actually recording this episode only a couple days after the last episode to accommodate service schedules and vacations. By the time this episode drops, I'll likely be in the midst of a 20-hour road trip. Uh, But since we are recording this so soon after the last, we didn't have a lot of feedback yet about which articles to do next in what order. So do continue to let us know. We enjoy the emails and the messages, icuedandtodcast at gmail.com and at icucast on the social. You'll notice Eddie covered it up, but it's service time for Todd and vacation for Eddie. (laughs) As a reminder, the topics that we thought about are... Uh, median nerve stimulation for traumatic coma, terlipressin for hepatorenal syndrome, brain response to propofol in recovery from coma, ischemic conditioning, glutamine for burns, catheter-directed thrombolytics in PE, thrombectomy timing in acute ischemic stroke, or anything that you have thought of that come that came out in the last three years as you want us to talk about. If you're listening closely, because why wouldn't you, you'll notice that I left off methylene blue from that list because we did get a single vote and that single vote was for methylene blue. Now, anything you've got before we begin? Nope, I don't think so. Let's hop into it. So yeah, like like I said, it's been a couple of days, so no emails. We'll just go ahead and begin. Well, actually, I, actually, I lied. Uh, before we begin, I wanted to go ahead and recognize that our first article is, is not a large trial by any means, but covers an interesting topic. And we also want to recognize and discuss research that's not just large, multi-center, multinational RCTs. Uh, so I, I'm just also going to say that up front that I'm going to play the voice of devil's advocate in this in conversation antagonist. You ready for that, Todd? Is that different than what you normally do? I'm probably not, but I felt like like I needed to say it this time. Got it. So it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. Or worser. Worser. Or more worser. The article title is Early Adjunctive Methylene Blue in Patients with Septic Shock, a Randomized Controlled Trial Published in Critical Care by Ibarra Estrada et al. in March 2023. There's no acronym here. It's killing me. Yeah, I'd just call it Blue Shock. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It has to be something with blue, right? Yeah. Early blue would work. Sounds awful. Early blue, early blues for the sepsis, early blue sepsis. Did you not like blue shock simply because it was my idea? No, because the blue came first, right? And he's the early methylene blue. I think he get early in there. Mm, I see. I think blue shock and early blue are pretty similar and I'd give them both mm, seven out of 10. Yeah, that's probably fair. That's probably very generous too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I give early blue a six out of 10 and yeah, you're blue just, shock a seven out of 10. Here, you're just a hater. Uh, I'll start on methylene blue. So it's thought to impact sepsis, maybe not so much the sepsis, but the shock part of it uh, and vasoplegia by inhibiting nitric oxide synthase and guanylate cyclase. At least the former part, that's going to decrease nitric oxide, which is a known vasodilator. There's data that I'll freely admit that I'm not super caught up that supports its use in patients who received cardiopulmonary bypass. But for sepsis, there's been a couple of small studies that are pretty unconvincing overall, no real impact on mortality, maybe less time on pressors. So Todd, why do I want to open this topic back up again? The trials I'm referring to are like 20 years old. (laughs) A long, long time ago. That's a long time ago. I mean, you were still in grade school. 
I was still in diapers. Uh, you wore diapers to grade school? Uh, yeah. If you put, put two and two together, that's what you got. Um, I think a couple background things. Uh, one is, is that there's always been interest in inhibiting NO because NO is thought to be a fairly significant player in the vasodilatation that we see from sepsis. The second is, is that there's well, the best way to say it may be smoldering use of methylene blue in patients with refractory shock. It's in a many post, especially post cardiac surgery, as you mentioned, vasoplegia protocols and you're on norepi and maybe on vasopressin and then you're still in shock and it's like, what do we do from here? Most of the evidence in that realm is anecdotal, but people think, well, it kind of seems to work in that realm. The bigger th- thing here, I think, is is that there's a big desire for non-catecholamine-based vasopressors. And while catecholamine-based vasopressors, like norepinephrine, for example, works in a large majority of the patients that we see that have septic shock, for example, I mean, we all have that experience. It happens not that infrequently where a patient just doesn't respond fully to norepinephrine. And you're like, I'm on a truckload of norepinephrine. They're still in shock. What am I going to do? We add vasopressin, right? Well, then what are we going to do? And at least by the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines right now, you add epinephrine, which is a little bit weird, right? Because norepinephrine is kind of epinephrine in the body. Just with nor tacked on yeah. to it. That nor is not a neither nor, so it's not like a not epinephrine. I was um, so so slick, Todd. Yeah, that's because I English was my bestest subject. I, you know, I think there's – and I think this was we, – we didn't talk about it with Athos, but I think this was part of the intrigue of angiotensin too was, hey, a non-catecholamine vasopressor and something that, you know, I might be able to use when it's pretty clear that – more catecholamines is not the answer to this patient's shock. Yeah. So you're talking about catecholamine sparing and the kind of detriments to increase catecholamine. So if you're not getting any benefit from a mean arterial pressure or perfusion perspective, then you're talking about increased digital ischemia, like those capillary beds that are smaller with less blood supply anyway, the distal places. Yeah. And I think you just took it to a different scenario. I was thinking about the not even sparing catecholamines, but when they just aren't working. Right. But, you know, you could be on a f- moderately to high level of, of norepinephrine and say, maybe it's better that I'm not on that level because of its vasoconstrictive effects. And maybe I should be on an adjunct like what vasopressin we know spares some catecholamines. And, you know, methylene blue may also be in that realm. Let me also say this. I'm intrigued by the whole concept because you, you're too young to know this, but in the early 2000s, in critical care medicine, there were back-to-back articles of an NOS inhibitor, a nitric oxide synthetase inhibitor. And the the response was fascinating because the first article had a blood pressure uh, outcome and it actually markedly improved the blood pressure. And everybody was like, oh, right, here's going to be a treatment for septic shock, right? This is awesome. Yippee, yippee, yippee. And then the second article, literally right after it, had increased mortality for the agent, even though their blood pressure was better. And so it, that was in an era where we were learning that many of the surrogates that we thought were great, oxygenation for outcomes from mechanical ventilation, for example, blood pressure as a surrogate for outcomes from patients that were in shock may not be the best surrogates and may not actually be good predictors of outcomes that we actually care about. Do you think that's what kind of rained on methylene blues parade, same mechanism of action type of drug? Yeah, maybe. Methylene blue has real side effects in that like I have in my experience given it and watched a patient get pretty severe, I guess really severe serotonin syndrome because you can get serotonin syndrome from, you know, in newsflash, there's a lot of SSRI use out there in the world today. 
it has some drug drug interactions that make it not the simplest to use. It's not impossible, but it's not, you know, you have to be cautious of what you're doing. And it has some real side effects that, you know, might be problematic. It might be problematic in patients that have G6PD deficiency, for example. And then I think just overall, as you said, the concept hasn't really panned out like we'd expected. And people just, I think when they've used it in their practice in limited times have not been that impressed with the, with the effect. Yeah. And some of that difficulty of use is reflected in their inclusion exclusion criteria, which I usually go to next, but there's actually something a little bit odd on the top of their methods that I wanted to get your opinion on. So it looked like the trial was registered after 17 patients were enrolled, which is almost 20% of their final sample size. Does that raise any red flags there. They received informed consent for all patients, which makes me think they knew they were doing a trial up front. Yeah, I think this was probably just a, a bit of an oversight and obviously less than ideal. It would be really bad if it was registered after they had enrolled everybody. Uh, it's still a little bit concerning that the trial was not registered before the first patient was enrolled. Yeah, but no big red flags as far as interpretation or otherwise? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, you know, it the the reason I think that there's some concern about that is is that we essentially have no record of those first 17 patients. What were they really thinking? What were they measuring? What was their outcome? You know, that sort of stuff. And the worry is, is did they look at something after those 17 patients, start to see some signal, something that they thought might be then, and then say, that's our outcome and that's what we're going to do? I, you know, I think that's the 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 if you want to be suspicious, that's the concern that people would have. Yeah, but I think it's fair to give them a benefit of the doubt for seventeen patients. You right? always give people the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes it's sometimes it's worth it, Todd. So You're such a nice guy. Who are these patients? The there are patients at a single academic center in a Mexican medical and surgical ICU who were adults with septic shock defined by the sepsis three criteria. So that's pressors and a lactate greater than two. There were a lot of exclusions as Todd was alluding to. I'll list them here. Uh, the first several are, you know, you're more than 24 hours on pressors, you are pregnant, there's a high probability of death in the next 48 hours, concurrent other shock, hemorrhagic, obstructive, or hypovolemic, pending damage control surgery, major burn, and then it gets into some of the methylene blue specific ones, a G6PD deficiency, an allergy to methylene blue or food dyes, use of an SSRI in the past four weeks. Um, and then the DSMB also didn't, didn't allow them to recruit patients with COVID-19. So that's a lot of exclusions right there. Uh, when you see lists like that, is there anything you start to look for or think of? No, I think it just undermines, maybe it's too strong of a word, but it just decreases the generalizability of, of kind of the use and the results. So, you know, you could say, wow, this is really a great result and I'm going to start using this in practice. But then you have to say, well, I have to take a step back and, you know, there are uh, at least a proportion of the patients in practice that I'm not going to probably use this in. Yeah, it's not all patients with septic shock. It's patients with septic shock who meet these criteria. Yeah. And some of those, if you're going to be good in your clinical practice, you're not going to give it to anyway. Like if they would have said, okay, we didn't think the risk of methylene blue and SSRIs was that high. So we, we didn't exclude those patients. You probably in your practice are going to be like, I'm not giving it to those patients because the risk of serotonin syndrome is a real risk in those patients. I wonder how many patients were excluded for an allergy to methylene blue. Or a food dye. Uh, so what did they do? The patients assigned to the methylene blue received 100 milligrams of methylene blue infused over six hours, once daily for three doses, compared to a normal saline placebo. Methylene blue is colored, and so to- What color is it, Eddie? Green? Yeah. Yeah. Methylene blue is colored, and so to blind the providers, they were prepared at a central pharmacy with opaque envelopes. That's all fine and good, but you have to suspect that patients whose 
urine and skin turn blue, you know, a well-known side effect of methylene blue and happened in 92% of the patients in the trial, unblinded the providers. Yeah, it's really hard to blind when uh, you have a colored infusion, right? And you can try and put an opaque cover over the IV bag and you can try and put an opaque cover over the tubing line into the patient. But ultimately, there's no way the bedside nurse doesn't know. The bedside nurse has to know. And as much as we try and tell the bedside nurse, don't tell the team, you know, that sort of stuff, like these things slip out. And so the blinding is, and this isn't a knock on them. It's just really hard. Right. No, it's, it's impossible. Right. It's, Are you going to drop blue dye into the urine bag? Right. Right. Or, I mean, in theory, if you really wanted to be high end, could you put blue dye in the placebo? But then it would have to come out blue, you know? Agreed. Yeah, it's it's a difficult situation. You could probably just put methylene blue into the placebo and then it would come out blue, Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. there and, you go. and it's harder to show an effect that way. But. <laughs> um, they also make a note in their unit that fluid resuscitation was guided by dynamic tests of volume responsiveness. I think we've talked about this before, potentially maybe not on the podcast, but you and I, Todd, have. They use basically every test that I've heard to do this. So aortic VTI after passive leg race, tidal volume challenge, respiratory variation of carotid peak flow velocity. I think... Instead of you telling us how these tests aren't your favorite for an hour, it's probably worth looking at the data that they gave us about fluids. What? Just so we know, they aren't my favorite. They are not. Yes. Uh, you've made that clear to me. I wanted to see like total fluid received, and I wanted to see how that matches up with my practice. But the only thing they gave me was a cumulative fluid balance over four days, which was only about positive a liter, uh, 830 cc's in the methylene blue group, and uh, 1.5 liters in the control group. I'm doing a lot of jumping around, but... Can you translate that at all for that baseline fluid management as compares to your practice? I feel like for me, I'm more net positive than that after four days. Maybe that's just my failure to address volume overload. Well, maybe. And maybe, you know, if the methylene blue works, you're going to give less fluid because the patient's not in shock for as long. Yeah, but even their control group was only 1.5 liters net positive. Yeah, net positive. Yeah. Um, Maybe they just have better kidneys than we're used to seeing. Potentially. Or lots of diarrhea. Yeah, I just just found it hard for me to... It's I don't know what to make of those numbers. It's hard to interpret what those numbers mean. And in fact... Post-randomization, while you want to see what fluid was given, because it's an effect potentially of the medicine, that those are hard to interpret also. If one of the arms has less hypotension, it's likely to get less fluid. That's just the way we practice. So it'd be nice to see what fluid they had gotten prior to randomization to make sure that you know they were similar and that you thought the patients were adequately resuscitated and that sort of stuff. But once you've started administering the therapeutic, you know, the amount of fluid that was given post that is likely confounded by any effect of the therapeutic. Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to say that when you're talking about the, like, looking at the post-randomization effect of the control group, that's how I say, hey, is this is this control group similar to my patients, is similar to the way I practice? And if it's not, then I can't suspect, I can't necessarily suspect that the intervention, the benefit of the intervention is the same benefit that I would see. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, completely agree. The last thing I'll go over before the outcomes is how they dealt with pressors. Uh, both groups got norepinephrine and then vasopressin at a dose of 0.03 if the norepi got to 20, 0.25 mics per kg per minute for a MAP target of 65 to 75. All patients got... 200 milligrams daily of hydrocortisone as continuous infusion for their sepsis. All that seems pretty reasonable. Their primary outcome was time to vasopressor discontinuation defined as discontinuation of all vasopressors for 48 hours. And then they had mortality in vasopressor free days as secondary outcomes. 
Any comments on presser use or their outcomes there? I mean, I think in a study like this, you probably have to protocolize your pressers. Then you can argue about whether you like the protocol or not. But I think you pretty much have to standardize the, especially when you know that the bedside nurse, for example, is not going to be blinded and the, the other providers are unlikely to be blinded also. I think you need to protocolize the, the care, especially the care that you are the most interested in, in seeing the effect of the, of the methylene blue. And so you have to protocolize, you know, steroids, treatment of septic shock using steroids and uh, what they do with the pressors. And so I think they did a reasonable job of that. I think some people could argue, well, I would have done it differently, slightly differently. But I mean, in general, I think it was important for them to standardize it and they've done that. So yeah, check the box. I think you could always say you do it differently or you do differently for that patient. But uh, anyone who's written a protocol and tried to deal with all those, try to encompass all those different one-off cases. I mean, this is probably as good as anything that I could come up with. Probably better, as you might say. <laughs> no, I would never say that. Never. So they enrolled patients for a long time, March 2017 to July of 2022. So just referring back to that uh, clinicaltrials.gov being registered after 17 patients, it looks like that was like three years uh, because that was it was registered in June of 2020. 308 patients were assessed, 92 were randomized, 45 assigned to methylene blue, and 46 to the control. Of the exclusions, the most common was COVID diagnosis, followed by other shock and then shock for more than one day. I know you say that you don't read too much into the consort diagrams, but I mean, 300 patients assessed over five years. I think even for a, a small unit, that's five patients with septic shock a month. So one a week seems a little bit low. I think the key there is that's assessed. That's not what they necessarily saw in their practice. That's just what they actually evaluated to whether or not they could enroll in the trial. And that may have to do with availability of enrolling people and, you know, do they have a study team and that sort of stuff. I do think you're right. I think it should make us talk about how generalizable is this. It's also fascinating to me that they enrolled 17 patients in the first three years and then 73 or something patients, right, in the last two years. And so, and the last two years, was confounded by the fact that there was probably a ton of COVID and they couldn't enroll COVID patients because their DSMB wouldn't let them. So it's interesting that they sort of picked up the pace in the last two years, but I don't know exactly what to make of that other than to just say it's an interesting note. Oh, I spent a lot of time on the methods there. I think it was really important to interpret the study. Table one is the baseline characteristics. The median age was 46, 60% male, mostly pulmonary abdominal source of infection. The median norepinephrine dose was 0.4-ish mics per kg per minute, and then 80% of the patients were on vasopressin, and 75% of patients had ARDS at baseline. So these patients are pretty sick. There were some small differences between the groups, but none I think I really want to linger on if you're okay with that, Todd. I think they're they're pretty representative of the septic shock patients that we see in our practice. You know, are they maybe a little older than 46? Maybe, you know, maybe in the 50s, if you took a, a cohort of patients from us with septic shock, a little bit a little bit more males than females, which I think is true. And then in every septic shock study that I pretty much know of, unless they're targeting other sources of other sites of infection, it's pretty much lung and abdominal infections that are the two big sources. Yeah. 
So I think the highlight there is that they're they're pretty sick. The outcomes, this was a positive study in that time to vasopressor discontinuation was 69 hours versus 94 hours, which was significant with a p-value of less than 0.001. You sometimes wonder about those outcomes about the competing risk of death. So it was reassuring that their 25-hour difference correlated with one more vasopressor-free day, um, which does account for death. This also led to shorter ICU and hospital length of stay, perhaps unsurprisingly. Numerically, more patients died in the control group, but it was not statistically significant, 33% versus 46% in a p-value of 0.23. As far as adverse effects, I mentioned that 42 of 45 patients had urine discoloration. There's also a higher methemoglobin level, 2.9% versus 0.5%. Um, and they didn't see any differences in transaminases, creatinine, bilirubin, or ejection fraction. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, these results are really provocative. You know, I mean, you can argue is one day more, is 25 hours more off of pressors clinically relevant? I think it probably is. You know, if I get a patient out of my ICU, off of pressors and out of my ICU one day earlier, that's for me, right? If I can shorten and survive, shorten the ICU length of stay, that's a, a win in my system where ICU beds are a desired commodity and they're not necessarily available all the time. So, so I think, you know, it's provocative. It's what I would call a phase two trial. It's 90 patients. It's not the 10 patients in each arm that, you know, really makes you wonder if it's just a random um, sampling and a random effect size. But it's also not big that makes you say, wow, I'm really confident in these results. So, you know, I think the word I would use is provocative and, and kind of interesting. This is available. So would this make me use it in practice? Yeah, that's my that's my question, right? Like, so off This of, is where you're going to be antagonistic? A little bit. Off of pressors faster, not powered for mortality necessarily, but there's a trend towards a benefit there. Kind of sounds like vasopressin, right? Catecholamine sparing, second line agent for sepsis. And we see vasopressin all the time. Uh, and we don't see this hardly ever at all for sepsis, at least. Yeah, I mean, vasopressin does have a large, you know, and multiple now, large trials, randomized trials actually evaluating it that are more than 90 patients. So I think... But like, why But why? Why not, right? So you said serotonin syndrome, potentially they turn their urine blue, but if I can find the that patient who may not have a detriment from methylene blue infusion, why not? Get it? Yeah, I think I think it's that. I think it's the uncertainty of the side effects. And it's hard to know what the side effects are in 90 patients. You know, there are lots of, of exclusions in this and patients that you're not going to be able to give it to anyway. And so I think just trying to get a have a little bit of a better understanding of what really are the effects and the side effects of it, maybe before I start using it in practice. Having said that, you know, some of our colleagues that work largely in a cardiovascular ICU are using this. They're using this not in septic shock, but they're using it in vasoplegic shock. So there's already already some experience and some use of it. I think I just would like to see a little bit more robust data. But then you say, you but know, are you, you willing to let a patient just die from refractory shock because you want more robust data? I know you're reading my outlines now. <laughs> it's not even on your outline. You just, you, I say something good and you're like, oh yeah, I already thought of that. Have, so have you, Todd, have you ever used methylene blue for refractory shock in your practice, sepsis? Not for, se- not for sepsis. Can you think of a situation where you're saying, hey, this might be a little bit out of the box, but I'd like to try it? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 the patient that I told you that got severe serotonin syndrome uh, was post-op and had vasoplegia. And I tried it in that situation and obviously it didn't go well because I was not in tune enough to recognize that the patient was also taking an SSRI and they got serotonin syndrome. Any of these vasoplegias, whether it's post-surgery, post-arrest, 
septic shock that hasn't responded to Norepi. You know, I think in the in the last ditch effort, it might be something that I'd consider potentially using. Um, but uh, I don't think it's going to be a routine run of the mill. Hey, you're on, you know, these were on 0.4 mics per kilo per minute of norepi. Hey, you're on 0.4 mics per kilo per minute of norepi. I think I'm going to start methylene blue. I think it's going to be a more of, wow, this patient really, really is going to die. And, you know, maybe I just do it and see if I can pull them back from the abyss. Yeah. I feel like taking my antagonistic hat off. I feel like for me, this is, well, what's your, what's your goal here? So we're talking about refractory shock in the, a lot, a lot of times in the post arrest setting, you're talking about prolonged, like no flow times and ischemic injury to the brain otherwise. And so maybe you can affect their shock and maybe it's not really making too big of a too big of an impact on their actual like global health and global care and recovery would feel fine using methylene blue, but it's pretty, it's a pretty niche situation. Yeah. I think your point about the post arrest is a good one, which is in post arrest that we've talked about a little bit on the podcast previously, mortality and survival may not be the ultimate endpoint that we're looking for. It may be survival with a good outcome. And if you have refractory shock and you've already had hypoperfusion or no perfusion, and now you have a prolonged hypoperfusion from refractory shock, you know, even if methylene blue saves lives, it may not be saving quality lives. Sepsis is a little bit different in that regard in the fact that usually, usually they haven't had a prolonged downtime, anoxia, that sort of stuff. And so in that point, in sepsis and that disease state, mortality or differences in survival may may ultimately correlate quite well with quality survival. Yeah, this antagonistic hat is too much fun. Well, that's why that's why early, right? You want to give it. You want to go ahead and give it early, not late. Yeah, I'm going to put it in the drinking water. <laughs> if any of the listeners will use methylene blue in your practice for sepsis, uh, please email us at icuedentodcast at gmail or message us at icucast. Love to hear your perspective. Is there anything else on methylene blue, Todd? No, I think we covered it pretty well. Uh, that's all we have for episode 18 of the ICU Ed and Toddcast. If you have any questions or want to tell Todd that he got everything wrong, uh, or you want us to talk about anything in the future, you can hit us up at ICU Ed and Toddcast at gmail.com. I think that's the third time I've said that today. Uh, you can also hit us up on the social at ICUcast, at Ed Chan, E-D-Q-I-N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd, again for all your insights. Thank you again to the study teams for all their hard work. Uh, thank you to Mike Gannon for the intro-outro music. Thank you to everyone listening. We will see you next time. Let's go save some lives. Let's go give some methylene blue. Maybe not as much methylene blue. I was about to say, has it really? Maybe let's go save some lives. Yeah, let's go do that. This podcast is made for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any length material is not intended and should not be considered as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.